We will now read from Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 5. Please listen now to the reading of God's holy and inerrant Word. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God, and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this another Sunday when we can gather in this place, and as a part of this community. Thank you, Lord, that um, we have this opportunity to be together. Uh, Lord, this, like so many weeks, too many weeks recently, has been a week filled with uh, distress and trauma and trouble in our culture, violence and death. Uh, Lord, it's been a time when we have seen too closely the brokenness and fallenness of the condition of our world. Uh, And so, Lord, it's fitting that we would come today and remember Your Advent, Your coming, and that we would think of that as something that will be the end of all of these horrible horrible things, horrifying experiences, uh, terrifying threats, challenging Uh, and grievous moments. Lord, all of these things are heavy on our hearts, and so we pray that you would indeed come, and that you would come quickly, and that you would wipe away every tear, and that there would be no more longing, nor fear, nor death anymore. But until that time, and as we wait, would you instill in our hearts an anticipation of that, And even today, would you use this, your word, and this passage from Isaiah in it to stir us into a greater awaiting, a deeper sense of longing for your return. And Lord, the reason why you can do that is not because of clever or eloquent words, nor is it because this book has just been one of great history but it's because this is a living Word, and you are still speaking through it. And we have ears to hear because you have unstopped them. And we have eyes to see because you have removed the scales from our eyes. And so we pray that you would increase our faith and help us in our unbelief and give us understanding and renewal of our minds through this, your Word. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're settling in, then children who participate in the 
children's church activities can be dismissed for that. Also, while you're settling in, if you're turning to Isaiah, turning back to Isaiah 55, uh, I want to recap a little bit. Uh, last week, Nathan began a new series for the season that we call Advent, right, which is the, a word that simply means uh, coming. Um, we think of the advent of Jesus in the nativity that we often remember at Christmas, but we also think of the advent of Jesus as we anticipate His coming return as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so this is a season when we're both looking back in history and also looking forward in history uh, to those two times. Nathan last week took us to Mark 10 and considered how we find rest in a God who makes the impossible possible and who takes helpless, helpless and impoverished people like you and me and gives them his riches. And so today... We're going to jump back into the Old Testament a little bit uh, and look at a part of what has been called Isaiah's Christ songs. Um, The Christ songs begin in chapter 51, and they actually make for a really wonderful Advent reading. So if you've been kind of wondering, what should I be doing in devotional life lately? Uh, This is a great season to go back from Isaiah 51 to about 57 or so and read through these Christ songs. And in chapter 51, then the prophet calls on the people of God to listen and hear of God's promises to come into their midst, into their pain, and into their struggle and suffering and need through his suffering servant. Doesn't that sound like a theme that would be really appropriate for what we're dealing with in our world these days? And then After that is the call to awaken to the truth that the arm of the Lord would come in judgment against sin and wickedness and that the servant would also clothe Jerusalem, the city of God, in his righteousness. And that leads into chapter 52 where God promised that this good news would be proclaimed to all of the people of the earth. And in chapter 53, we're reminded and promised that the suffering servant would endure his suffering for the sakes of those who would believe. And then chapter 54, they and we begin to hear of the fruit that the servant's labor would bear, redemption and blessing and hope in the face of suffering. And in light of that, then we come today to this passage in chapter 55. So I'm, I'm presuming a lot of background there, right? There's a lot of things that are going on underneath what has led up to 55. But 55 is kind of a culmination point, and these first five verses beckon us to come. They're they're verses of hospitality, of, of welcome, of invitation, to come and find answer to our need, to find satisfaction for our souls, to find rest for our restless hearts. Because as Augustine wrote and said once uh, in prayer, but we acknowledge this to be our prayer as well. O Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Rest is not always a theme that we associate with this time of year, right? Uh, if, If anything, then it seems like socially our busyness kind of scales up during this time of year, right? Suddenly there's parties when we don't throw parties randomly at other times of the year. 
And there's more events at church and at school and in community and there's things we want to do and there's shopping that we do and decorating and wow, is rest really a part of the season? And yet, rest is the reason why Jesus came. That's part of the reason anyway why he came. And we, we hear just hints of that here and there, right? Remember that carol, that hymn, God rest ye merry, gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Tidings of comfort and joy. Those are restful words, aren't they? We need that assurance. We need that encouragement. We need that reminder of rest. We need the assurance that the satisfaction that we crave will be fulfilled. Not in the Christmas presents that we open on December 25th. Not in the feasts that we lay out before one another. Not in the cessation from work or maybe in the desperate longing for the break to be over so we can get back to work. We need the assurance that our satisfaction will be fulfilled and the rest that we long for will be ours beyond ourselves, beyond our means. And so in light of Christ's merciful work, then Jesus bids us to come. In light of his merciful work that he established and and that's described in all of those passages before chapter 55. That's why I took a moment to recap briefly, in light of all of that merciful work, that he has come into our suffering, that he has become one like us, that he has taken our suffering on him so that we would not have to, that the fruit of that work is the possibility of our redemption and of our fulfillment and of our being made whole again. In light of that merciful work, he bids us to come. And there are four things he invites us to come and to find. First, in verses one, to five, one, to, 1 and 2, then we find the invitation to come and find satisfaction and rest. And then in verses 3 to 5, the invitation to come and find assurance and peace. Satisfaction and rest, and then assurance and peace. So let's look together at those two different sections just briefly and see how he invites us to come and find these things. First, Jesus says, come and find satisfaction and rest. How? Buying without money. How do you buy without money? Anything worth buying costs, doesn't it? We've heard all the sayings, you get what you pay for, and there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? This is exactly the point. This is costly, what we're talking about. This possibility of redemption and wholeness and rest, it costs. And we cannot afford it. The price is too high for me. It's too high for you. But that cost has been paid for us. A man named Oscar Romero said this, No one can celebrate a genuine Christmas without being truly poor. 
The self-sufficient, the proud, those who, because they have everything, look down on others. Those who have no need, even of God, for them there will be no Christmas. Only the poor, the hungry, those who need someone to come on their behalf will will have that someone. That someone is God, Emmanuel, God with us. Without poverty of spirit, there can be no abundance of God. Now, Doesn't that exactly echo what Nathan said last week? That the rich man will have great difficulty entering the kingdom of heaven. That those who have it all together can't have Jesus. Why not? Because they will too easily believe the lie that they can meet their own needs. I have a friend who pastors in Queens, New York, among upper middle class, fairly wealthy people. By any standard, right? New York is an expensive place to live, and the the wealthy among New York are wealthy by any standard ever. And he says that one of his greatest struggles as a pastor is that need is a concept that is utterly lost on these folks. He said, one guy came to him and said, I earn more money than I could spend. I drive a nice car and live in a comfortable home. I have a beautiful wife and smart, well-adjusted kids. I spend my free time doing the things that I want to do. What could I possibly need? Now, that doesn't describe most of us. Except for that part where we wonder really deeply, what could we possibly need that we can't provide ourselves? That's hard for me. I assume I'm not the only one in the room that that's hard for. I want to meet my own needs. I want to satisfy my own debts. I want to earn with my own two hands what it costs. But Jesus invites me to come and buy without money because I can't do that. I can't earn enough. I can't meet my own needs. That is my need. That is your need. That we can't meet our own costs. But Jesus has bid us, come Buy without money and without cost because he has paid that cost for us. What will satisfy, he asks. That question in verse 2 helps us see ourselves more clearly. Why do, we, why do we go after these things that won't satisfy? We have real and innate desires. We have true needs for bread And for the end and completion of our labor. And these can only be satisfied in certain ways. On the front of the worship folder, you'll find a quote from C.S. Lewis that really hits at this. Lewis says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a need as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself with a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, 
that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. So if you're, if you're wrestling with this idea that you heard last week from Nathan, now you're hearing from me, that what you do of yourself can't get you there. If you're wrestling with that, consider what Lewis is pointing out to us here. Because what he's referring to is what Isaiah says, that our desires for something more than what we can provide for ourselves, and it's, it's beyond our reach apart from God. Or as I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, we're all born with a God-shaped hole in our hearts that only he can fill. It could be, if you're wrestling with this, that what you're looking for is found here. When I or you or the self-satisfied executive in Queens feels that our needs are met in ourselves, we're ignoring what is truer and what is deeper within those needs. We're scrounging for stale crumbs beneath the banquet table while rich foods beyond our imaginations have been laid out for us above. But Jesus doesn't leave us there. Not only does he bid us to come and find satisfaction and rest, but he also invites us to come and find assurance and peace. And so we see that in verses 3 to 5. First, in this sure and steadfast love that is there. Now, this part, if there's any part that we're going to look at and say, what? Then this is going to be it, where there's some reference to this covenant with David, and we're, we're thinking, what? What does that have to do with this or with me? David was that king then, but I'm not an Israelite. I'm not even Jewish. I don't think I have any of that in my background. What's going on here? But to the Israelite, who Isaiah was writing to, right, nothing would have given them more assurance than these words, that the promise of an everlasting covenant was theirs, consistent with that of David. You've heard Nathan and others refer to this particular kind of love, which always comes to us in Old Testament Hebrew as this word chesed. It's a particular type of love, an enduring and everlasting and constant love. It's sometimes translated as steadfast love or loving kindness or one of those words that we look at and we think, that is such a beautiful word beautiful concept. And it's deeper and richer and fuller than any love we can find elsewhere apart from God himself. It's the true satisfaction of our souls. It's the source of our true rest. And it is the ultimate assurance for the believer and the means of obtaining the peace that we desire above all else. Because again, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And that's exactly the kind of love that leads God to make a covenant with David and that causes God to be faithful to that covenant because his is an enduring, steadfast love. While my love is not steadfast, I'm inconsistent in my love for God. I'm inconsistent in my love for others. I'm often selfish in the way that I relate to God and to others. 
he is not inconsistent with me in response. He is steadfast in that love because he is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping, chesed-loving God. And the more you get your head into that concept, the more you will find the same kind of assurance that the Israelites would have found in this reminder from Isaiah. And therefore God says, you, Israel, not only have you received this love, but you are a witness to nations that you don't even know. How is that so? How does that work out of all of this? Because in a world that is lacking in satisfaction and always searching for more, those who know God's covenantal chesed love are the only ones who can, try, who can truly find contentment and satisfaction. Because in a culture that is restless and constantly toiling and working and striving, believers who know this everlasting love will be the ones who can rest. Because while the heart of the one who believes he has it all together and that he has gained his own place, as Nathan said last week, is always in need of being reassured. Those who have received God's enduring love apart from themselves and instead by his invitation, will be assured. And because in a time when no one around us seems to be at peace, and anger and fighting and violence and outrage are daily occurrences, then those who know the love of the Prince of Peace will find that his peace is also theirs. And because... When all of these things manifest themselves into the lives of those who are the beloved, who have received that everlasting, steadfast love of the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, when others behold that, then they cannot help but see a witness and testimony to the presence of what they truly long for. Remember how much God said he wanted to set this nation apart, this, this people of Israel, that they would be his set-apart ones. Why? Not because they were special. In fact, he trips over himself almost to remind them at times in the Old Testament that he didn't choose them because they were special, but in fact because they were so plain, because they were so common, because there was so much not something special about them. He chose them to set them apart. And he said, I I set you apart so that others would recognize that I am your God. And beloved, that is what he says to you and to me too. If you have believed in him, that he has set you apart, not because you're special, but to make you special. Not because you are anything but plain, but to distinguish you. He longs for you to wear that identity. And if you have never believed in him, this is an invitation to do that. If you do believe in him, 
This is a reminder that he has set you apart for your good and blessing. Because from this little moment in Isaiah 55, then we begin to see how God is wrapping all that he has been promising and proclaiming up to this point in those previous chapters, that that longings are answered, that fears are assuaged, that faith is assured, that therefore these who he has called his own will be a picture of what he will do and what he has done for his beloved. And there's no better time than this time of the year to be reminded of that. The theologian N.T. Wright said this about Christmas. He said, Christmas is not a dream. It's not a moment of escapism. Christmas is the reality which shows up the rest of reality. Either Jesus is the Lord of the world and all reality makes sense in his light or he is dangerously irrelevant to the problems and possibilities of today's world. There is no middle ground. Either Jesus was and is the Word of God, or He and the stories Christmas tell about Him are lies. What will you do with that? Are these lies? Or do they change everything? Let's pray. Gracious God, We wrestle with this because it is, frankly, even a little bit offensive to us to be told that we can't measure up. And we wrestle with this because a call to something that literally has said, I'm going to change everything in your life by what I'm inviting you to believe, is a very threatening thing. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that work in us to give us a fresh and new identity so that we can believe these things and act on them in accordance with the way that you would have us, in accordance with what is true, in accordance with what you have proclaimed here in your word. Lord, we long to believe that our satisfaction can be met. We long to believe that our longings can be satisfied, that we can find rest. So would you help us in our unbelief of that? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.